This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. This is the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about leadership and management with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. For more than two decades, the IBM Center for the Business of Government has sought to connect research to practice, engaging authors and academics in their research and studies who contribute in some form or fashion to changing the way government does business. What is a human-centered team? What are the keys to building a human-centered team? And how can we make local government operations human-centered? I'll explore these questions and much more with Glenn Akramoff, author of The Human-Centered Team. Glenn, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Glad to be here. Thank you. Glenn, what prompted you to write your book, The Human-Centered Team? Well, a couple of things. One, I I had a book on my list for, like many of us do, um, I knew I had one in me. And then I started uh, developing the the program that I used, first of all, in my career and then as a consultant and realized I wanted to share it. And so that's why uh, we wrote it and everything kind of came together last year to bring it all to a head. So when you think of the term human-centered and you put team at the end of it, what are the characteristics Clan of a human-centered team, and and more importantly, who is the intended audience for this work? So the 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 human-centered team is is what it sounds like. One of the things I realized in in the early parts of my career is that workplaces that were not focused on the human part of things were not as successful and actually became toxic, and that at times can become fatal for some of the participants. So the characteristics are that you focus on the humans that are doing it. So, and the humans that the team serves. Um, And, you know, I think the biggest part of that is making sure that people are happy and healthy and productive as human beings. We actually are much better when we're productive and the intended audience um, is actually everyone. The book is is intended to be a fairly quick read. My career started at on the front lines as a seasonal maintenance worker, and I want I wanted them, the people who are doing that work, to to be attracted to reading this, and um, and so I also want leaders to understand how to build a, a team that's focused on on those frontline folks. But um, but that's my intended audience. That's great. So in your book, as I was reading it, you identify uh, – it's very practical in its insights. And I, I thought you'd take some time just to simply I briefly identify the six – what you call the six pillars of workplace culture. I was very interested in that. Could you identify them for us? Yeah. yeah so um, as I started to develop my program, I realized there were there were six main things that – 
I needed to work on when I took over a team. And then as in consultant work, it, it, it really resonates. So the first one is culture and everything starts with culture. That's the, that's the buzzword now, but in reality, as human beings, we need to have a culture that is productive for us. The second one is structure and structure actually feeds culture a lot more than you think in that having the right people in the right positions, it it really helps the culture survive. And structure I find is really uh, tends to uh, happen organically. You just replace someone as they come and no one really goes through the strategy of putting it together. The third one is uh, systems. So that's the things you do, uh, the things you use, the tools you use to do your work. Um, depending on what that is, it can be software, hardware, your building, your your equipment, your cars. The next one is processes, and that's how you go about step-by-step doing your work. One of the things I found is that that's fairly inconsistent everywhere, and that impacts your uh, customer experience. And then one that a lot of people don't take into account is external pressures or external forces. Those are things you can, you have to deal with, but can't control. And you need to have a strategy for them. And then the last one is analytics or performance measurement. Um, what you measure, you know, we as, as humans and Americans in particular love to count things. And sometimes you count too many things. So what is the meaningful part of that? That's great. In the book, I noticed that you posit that if a culture is dictated by the few rather than lived by the many, that there's really no culture and most certainly no positive culture. What do you mean by that? Well, the one of the things I noticed is is in in all of my work is that the leader is not always the one who dictates culture. And a lot of times uh, I find that there are unwritten rules that are put in in your culture to protect the team. That's how they normally start, but they can be easily corrupted. And they tend to be corrupted by the most dominant and, and most of the time the most negative personality, if that's allowed to happen. And so that's what I mean is that that there is no culture. People are just, you know – trying to navigate those unwritten rules of the one or the the few who are dictating the process. Um, it definitely is a negative event for everyone, but it really isn't any culture because the the person or the few people who are trying to dictate don't take into account everything. They only take into account themselves. And that is a a basic premise when you get into a toxic workplace. That's a great point. And uh, so, you know, I was thinking, um, you point out some truisms too in your book, which I think are very helpful uh, in the context in which you write them. But, you know, bad things happen. But you point out what really matters most when difficulty arises. Like, what's what's the most important thing to take from it? What can we learn from it? I, I think that's the first thing, is to is to go into it knowing that you need to learn from it. There's a lesson in every positive and in every every challenge and difficult situation that shows up. 
Uh, I was in a workplace in the last couple of years where they had a uh, an accident, and um, that day didn't know whether the um, whether the person was going to survive or not. One of their teammates. And so it was very difficult on everyone. He was very popular and um, thankfully he did and is back to work and everything is fine. But what it really did was brought together a, a leadership team that I was in charge of in that dire situation. And what they learned from it was that they can work together, even though at times they were feuding. They did have a lot of more common interests than they thought they did. And so they learned their lesson and then they and then they have taken that and used it again because difficult situations arise. So it gave them confidence. It gave the the team a lot of confidence in them. Um so I think that's the the number one thing is what what are we meant to learn by this situation and how can we learn it? And then let's move on. Stuff happens. Yeah, that's a great point. How important, uh, Glenn, in your experiences, it, it, in your work life, have you noticed that uh, the role of structure uh, is when trying to build a successful culture, uh, and particularly within a modern workplace, in a workplace that, that uh, you know, since the, the pandemic has become a hybrid where it's not necessarily physical? Yeah, it, it's, um, it is a huge important part, and, and it has become – super important to define roles, but defining roles is not just defining, you know, Hey, you know, I'm an admin assistant and this is the five things that I have to concentrate on. And these are the skills I need to have. Um, it's about taking the person and creating the position around their skill set, And then that actually allows you as to create a structure that fulfills all of the needs of the organization and and sometimes in a in a team of four you can fill all the needs um the way that goes i believe structure in the way people do their positions and work in their positions i want everyone in that structure to be doing what they love to do 70 percent of the time we can't always do it we know we can't always do it but if you can get to 70 you are you're going to be a pretty happy, productive employee and, and you're not, and, and that resonates with the culture. It resonates with everything else you problem solve, you innovate when you're in that space. Um, So I think structure is, is incredibly important because of the opposite is true. Someone is not in the right place, but they're a little scared or skittish to, to move on helping them as a leader find what they love to do and what their, what their purpose is in the workplace um, can, can create magic with it. And, and it resonates throughout the entire organization. Hmm, that's, that's great. So when thinking of system of the systems in place um, to structure the workplace, uh, Glenn, why is it important for leaders to follow the adage as you put it and reiterate, an ounce of prevention can and does equal the pound of cure. What do you mean in the context of what you wrote? Why is that so important? Well, I think most of us, um, our world has become sound bites and incredibly reactive to those sound bites. And that's what 
that's how we're operating today because we have so much information coming at us as a as a leader your um your responsibility and and i i think i mentioned it in the book but this is something that i that i talk about a lot when i'm building teams is as a leader you need to be at least 90 days a quarter ahead of your people and by that i mean you need to be ahead of what they're doing what their schedule is what's coming next um and you also have to be in tune with what's next with them and um they will tell you show you when they're struggling and when they're thriving and as a leader you need to make sure that that's the case because i think one of the challenges i face regularly going into workplaces is that they have um you have mental illness and you have substance abuse it's just part of our culture and um when you start to see someone go down that road as a leader you can see it you can see things start to happen and if you if you take that prevent preventative step have the difficult situation are are respected and trusted by them then you can take that action they can take the action and then then you're not worrying about firing them eight months down the road when they pop on a drug test or they get a drunk driving or something like that. Um, and so that's that's what I mean by that. Glenn, what insight did Mr. Strom teach you about the importance of change? Well, I, I think, um, you know, he he was such a, a positive influence. And it, it's interesting, I only had him for one class. He was my homeroom teacher, but I had I only had him for one class. But he still saw me three minutes a day and and was able to influence me. And and I think that was that was part of it is that um, he, you know he told me I was I tended to not follow the the normal path, and that um, and that people were you know that that was okay, and that being comfortable with change was, was a gift that I had been given and that not everybody had it. And so, you know, to me, what he taught me is that change is taken individually and that um, each person goes through it at their own speed. And, um, you know, he told, he was very clear, Hey, you, you go through it fast and most people aren't going to, be able to do it that way. So, so be aware of that. That's great. Yeah. Um, how important Glenn is it for a workplace to have good processes in place and followed and why is the Goldilocks zone and processes uh, so difficult to attain, albeit very vital for an organization's health? Well, there's a, there's a couple of things. I think, I think processes are, are, um, incredibly important for consistency for training especially consistency of your customer performance or or experience one of the things that makes it interesting is processes are related to systems and what systems you're using and what i found is a lot of people will find workarounds to whatever is their obstacle that you know they're being innovative but they will do they will do a workaround a little different than the next person. And actually, pro, the process people use to do their work, they're very possessive of. 
And because of that, that is actually where most of the conflict I have found starts in a workplace. Because, you know, Joe is doing it this way and he's taking 22 steps and Mary's doing it this way and she's taking 12. That means I as Mary am better than Joe, right? And then you get into that conflict. And most of the time people don't talk about why Mary does it in 12 and Joe does it in 22. So it becomes incredibly important to keep the conflict down, to keep consistency. And then you add a third person in there who comes in to be trained by one of them. They'll be trained differently by Joe and Mary. And then they have confusion. And then when they're working alongside Joe and they do it Mary's way, there's frustration. So it puts a new employee in a bad spot. So it's incredibly important. It is true. Um, You also point out in the book, Glenn, that external forces are the things that impact operations, but they don't have to have control over uh, individual workers or an organization. And where I'm going with this is your admonition that there can be a strategy. You can create a strategy to anticipate and maybe react to these external forces. How important is it to have a strategy to ameliorate the impacts of external forces that you can't control? Yeah, I think I think that is um, when you don't have a strategy, it's your biggest stressor. So when you ask anyone in the workplace what keeps you up at night, most of the time you're going to get an external force listed near the top, if not the top. So it causes angst and stress that hurts performance, but it also hurts the a human soul at times, depending on how heavy the stress gets. So I, I use the example because it's, it's, it's appropriate now is, you know, inflation has gone through the roof and for many companies that is having a major impact and people are stressing about it, but you have to have, um, you know, if you have a strategy, you're not going to be stressed about it because we know that the ebbs and flows of the market and costs of, of doing business is part of the program. So we can plan for it. One of the, one of the best examples I've seen is, you know, gas prices and fuel prices go up and down and we've had some big surges and we're in one now, at least where I am in Washington and the trucking companies, the really good ones who deliver goods have a, have created a program that when it gets to a certain level, they put a surplus, a fuel surplus on their deliveries. It's very clear to see. They put it on all their billing so everyone can see. And as soon as the price dips below that, they take it off. And so that is a way to strategize for an external uh, force that you can't control. But if you do it that way, it has a less impact on your business and your and your people, and certainly your stress. So, Glenn, you know, we all know performance management, and it's sometimes it's great, sometimes it's it's hard, depending on what it's applied to. But what is human-centered performance management? Well, I, the the big part of that is is the fact that we a lot of times when we do KPIs or you know whatever indicator we're using, we focus on a dollar or we focus on how many widgets we completed. And that becomes our our end game. But for many people, that doesn't motivate them. 
and that doesn't get them, you know, coming to work every day and feeling good about things just because we we added a hundred thousand to our our quarterly uh, revenue. So the human centered one is measurement is focused on being able to measure, translate that measurement into something meaningful. A number of years ago when I was a supervisor in maintenance, uh, we did some snow and ice, a snow and ice event. And we got out and the crew did a fabulous job. And we were in a small town, but it was retail, had a lot of retail. And it was at Christmas time. And other cities around us didn't do as well. And so people couldn't get around in their cities. So everyone came to our city to Christmas shop. It raised our revenue significantly, our tax revenue. All of our businesses did fantastic. Helping the the team who was out there 12 hours a day, you know, for three weeks handling this situation and not being at home during the holidays, helping them understand how many people were positively impacted by that was a big deal for them. That got to their purpose and their their sense of accomplishment. And so I think that's what you want to be thinking about when you're doing when you're doing measurement. What are the keys to building a human-centered team? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the special edition of the Business of Government Hour. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors with Glenn Akramoff, the author of The Human-Centered Team. As I said earlier, uh, Glenn, your book is very uh, practical um, in terms of uh, offering recommendations that folks can apply uh, in their workplace. And and you have a section, a, a, um, a part of the book that deals with the keys that outlines the keys to building human centered teams. And I want to really delve a little deeper into each one of these building blocks, if you will. And, and my first question is around purpose. Why is aligning purpose the first key to building a winning human centered team? Well, I, I, we started just started with that with the last story is that the fact that um, I believe that everybody has a purpose for being here. And they have a purpose for being at work. Yes, it's to pay the bills and to take care of their family. But for people to be successful, they need to feel like they're there for a reason. And we as human beings just are, are purpose-driven um, in general. 
So what I found is that you want to make sure that the organization has a clear purpose for being, and we all do. And it can be corrupted pretty easy where we're now we're focusing on the quarterly numbers or the, you know, the KPIs or whatever. But the reality is that there's a reason for us to be there and almost every business serves other human beings. The organization has to be very clear about why it's there. And that's not a mission statement. Right? A mission statement is is very important, but it tends to be a paragraph long. A purpose is more about something everyone can remember. This is who we are. The same is true of individuals. Now, many Many people, I've only found about 15% of people really know what their purpose is um, and have written it down and understand it. So as a leader, when I go in to work with a team and create a team, I want that to help them identify what their purpose is. And and when I do, and when they figure it out, again, it's not mine, it's theirs. So I I need to help them go through the process of figuring it out. And when they do, then then now their energy is up. They're like, oh, yeah, I want to do that. I want to do more of that. That's how we identify the 70% of what they love. Now the individual has it, the organization has it. Now you want to align those two and and make sure that what the person, the individual loves and and what the organization needs and is is intent on doing can be aligned. And when it when it aligns, it's magic. People will go out of their way. When you talk about loyalty, that is really where loyalty comes from in my mind. And so I, I think that's that's why it's so important to align the purposes. Yeah. And and you know, it, it it's a nice um dovetail into or introduction into the next question I had around the the, the role vision plays in creating a dynamic workforce. I was hoping you could you could talk to that and also, you know, the importance of visualization and the, and the effort itself. Vision is something that you're, you're striving to be. Um, you know, I, I use a lot of, I use some store, sports analogies in the book. And to me, sports teams have it fairly easy with their vision, right? It's to win the championship. In day-to-day work, it isn't always so clear. Um, but having that vision of, you know, as an example, we're going to talk a little bit later about my government career. I believe government, um, especially local government, has a it's it's not hard to find a a vision that is appealing to people. You get to serve other human beings and help their life be better. And creating that that vision and getting I think the key for a leader is it can't stay your vision. It's got to become everybody's vision. So you can't have possession of it. You start it. It starts with you. But down the road, you you let it go and let it evolve with the other people that are on the team. How important a visualization is it? Having been a formal athlete, that's how I got to success is visualizing what that vision would be or what what I wanted and or how my performance would be um, come about. So I think creating that with everyone on the team is important. I also think creating visual things around the the workplace that reminds them of of who they are and where they're going and that's not always a poster. Sometimes that's a picture of when we nailed it, 
when we were successful or um, one of the things I like to do that I think is important is part of the vision has to be your team being successful together. So one of the traditions that I start every place I go is taking a picture annually of the team and putting it on the wall. And then you can see it evolve over 20 years. And I was recently in one that I started that 20 years ago and they still have the pictures every year. And you can see the team evolve and you can see the vision start to happen because they'll take it in front of their their most favorite vehicle and or 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 something they accomplished. So I think that's that's how vision is accomplished and seen. Yeah, you know, um just to ask you to elaborate, because Glenn, you do reference a couple of uh sports engagements. And I was wondering what was fun about putting that in the book? Like maybe perhaps you could share an anecdote or a vignette around what sports meant to you and and what it brings out in, in creating the, your vision of the human center team. Well, um, I was an athlete all through high school. I started playing baseball when I was like six and I was pretty good at it and I enjoyed it. But what I enjoyed more than anything was the team. Um, the team concept and it taught me how to be on a team and um, and all of that. So as we're writing the book, my editor was also an athlete, a, a division one football athlete. And so when we got into discussions about certain things and we we're talking about built, filling out things, um, it actually was part of the synergy of, of he and I working together. Yeah, so I love sports. I love what it teaches you. I, I I use a lot of the movie clips in in some of my workshops and things like that um, because it does teach. A, you know, there are a lot of moments um, that are really special, and I again I share a number of those in the in the book. Yeah, it's excellent. So it's a good uh, going into about. Being a leader, I think being on teams it kind of gives you a sense of what it means to be a leader. And, and, and that's my next question is, why is it important for a leader uh, in an organization or a workplace to define their wins so that they inspire folks on a, on a human level? And what are the implications that you've seen of doing just that? You know, I said earlier that, that sports teams have it made because their win-loss record is the way that that's their KPI and they know where they're going. But when you're in accounting, it's a little harder to define what your win is day-to-day. Um, um, -day. And, and so it is so important when you're in a routine-type job or any any work what what defines our win what how do we win and how do we put a w in the in the the win column and not put one in the loss column um again that goes back to the sense of purpose and sense of accomplishment that is so important to us as human beings um and to know that we mean something and our work means something um and when you define those those very things and they're different in every workplace and in every team uh, you know, I talk a lot about magic and I think that's, I've watched what people could define as miracles happen because um, people know what a win is and they know how to go get it and they go get it and they start winning. And what I tell everybody um, is, and here's the implication part, is that when you perform like a champion, no matter what your role, no matter what 
work you're, you're in, you will be treated like a champion. And, you know, I have a lot of skepticism about that, but when people get to that level of performance as a team, they, they start to realize it does happen. Uh, I have a confidence in our, and we have an aura as a team that, that people know that we're good at what we do. We're not cocky or overconfident. We're just really good and we do a good job. And, you know, you can, that, that's a pretty cool thing to take home every night. Hmm. Definitely. Definitely. You know, um, I was wondering after we define what our wins look like, what do you mean by the importance of defining what our season looks like? thought that was an interesting juxtaposition. As a government worker, when I first started, you know, that, that was the mentality um, was you, you get the job. It's very, you know, they're good jobs that they are consistent, they pay well. And then you put in a 30 year career and how do you measure success over a 30 year career? That's very difficult. Also, um, and we'll talk, um, a little bit later about the performance flow, but as human beings, we can't perform, you know, the goal has always been be consistent, but being too consistent actually, in my opinion, lowers your performance. So in order to be able to understand what, what, and how to count your wins and losses and know whether you had a winning year or not, you have to have a season. And, um, my early career and a lot of my career has been in, in maintenance and operations. So maintenance operations is very clear seasonally. You have, you know, in the winter, if you're where it snows, you do snow and ice. If during the uh, summer you're doing construction projects to make sure that everything functions, you know, whether it's road repair or whatever. And so you can define what a win means in each of those seasons. The other part is that, as a maintenance worker, I learned I can't go full speed for 365 days. Professional athletes, they have a season, they have an off season where they rest, recuperate, and then train for their season. And so that's the concept is that if you have a season where you can have an off season and you can do your training and in if you have a physical job, you can heal your body and, and take care of it. Then you will last longer. You'll be in less pain overall, and you'll have more energy to fulfill your pur- your purpose and your work in your season. Well, that's an excellent point. So, keep, keeping on this, um, I, I guess we would say a metaphor of you know winds and, and seasons. Uh, you point out that championships are built uh, one step at a time, and uh, I, I wonder how important is. Uh, constantly debriefing, checking in, if you will, to the to the journey towards human centered teams and where it needs to be. How important is that function of of debriefing? It has to become part of the culture in order for you to continue to grow. So, so to me, when you start with a um, a team as you're starting to build them and they're starting to move in a positive direction. The way that you get everyone committed to um, improving on a steady, constant basis is to to put in a process of of evaluating what's happening. And so, 
debriefing constantly, I, I, I mean constantly in that every task that you do, you should ask yourself a couple of questions. It's only three, and it, it is what went well, what didn't, and what am I going to do different next time? And when you put those into your culture, you can do it whether you're building in a, a bridge or you're um, in the maintenance context or you're fixing a pothole, both totally different contexts and, and size of operation, but you can use that process to evaluate every step and realize, okay, there's things that I'm doing. Once you get into that and people think that way, then they they start to innovate. They start to realize, wait a minute, I'm not going to just do this because I've always done it that way. And be, and, and it takes that part away. Um, and then when you have a new employee join and they ask the basic questions that new employees do, you're, you're no longer just going, well, that's the way we do it. You think, well, maybe I should consider doing it that way. So it, it takes complacency out and gets constant growth happening. Excellent point. Glenn, how best can we understand flow performance? What does that phrase mean, flow performance, and how best can we understand it? Yeah, to me, it's the, um, this is something that I noticed. You know, I tell the story of my son, and then I noticed it with myself. Um, as human beings, we're, we can't be. We are up and down. We have a natural cycle. Um, I found it to be around six weeks. Um, it, it, you know, people can, you can, you can alter it if you're super aware of it. Um, but it, I found it in six weeks. And the reason, the reason that it is so important is that when you, um, understanding where you are, so you can probably, um, relate that, you know, you're doing you're doing one of these shows, and everything goes smoothly, and you're doing great, and you know everything goes great, and then you'll do one two weeks later, and it won't go that well. Then you're like, "Why? I just did this. This is I'm you know, I should be able to do this. I do this every day, or do this regularly, and that is your performance flow at work. We tend to ramp up, and then we have what I call a performance plateau where we where everything comes easy and we just pump out work left, right, and center, then we're going to break down. We're going to come out of it and we're going to need to rest and recuperate. And then we'll hit a bottom and then we'll bounce back up and start ramping up. And um, understanding it as a leader and understanding how your team is doing and the individuals are doing is important part. But I think one of the biggest things I found is not beating yourself up for a performance when you know you, when you're doing the best you can and you're in a flow of performance that is low because you need to rest and recuperate and um, do all sharpen the saw as Stephen Covey says you you realize that hey this is just part of me this is who I am and this is part of how I need to do it I'm going to do the best I can every day but sometimes my best is is different and so you take yourself off the hook a little bit and that uh, that voice inside you can uh, can take you off the hook and realize I, I will have a performance later on that will be good. 
once you get to know how to do it, then you can, uh, I mean, I try to do all of my big presentations and all the big things that I have to do when I'm at the top of my game. So my schedule is dictated now by my performance. Flow. Well, that's interesting. You know, Glenn, are there any other elements uh, regarding the building of a human center team that you want to share with us? Yeah. I think the one we didn't talk about is celebrating success. It is so important to, to, you know, we tend to be a checklist type of society. Boom, we're done, move on. Boom, we're done, move on. And that's great to a certain extent, but, but we never look back and realize how far we've come. And so celebrating those successes in the appropriate level, or sometimes it's just a, you know, just a awesome, we did great. And sometimes it's a, it's a, full-on party you know but but you need to take time to do that and every toxic or or workplace that's struggling that i've been in doesn't celebrate success how can we make local government operations human-centered we'll explore this question and so much more when our special edition of the business of government hour returns How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. This is The Center This Week, highlighting the latest trends and best practices for improving government effectiveness, brought to you by the IBM Center for the Business of Government. I'm Michael Keegan, Managing Editor of the Business of Government magazine. The Center This Week is our opportunity to inform and, most importantly, to invite you, our listeners, to use the IBM Center for the Business of Government as your resource, a how-to resource for improving government effectiveness at the state, local, and federal level. What is ruthless consistency, and how can it make you a better leader? Why should we jettison strategic planning and pursue strategic management? I'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Dr. Michael Kanick, author of Ruthless Consistency, How Committed Leaders Execute Strategy, Implement Change, and Build Organizations That Win. Michael, uh, we are in the midst of a, of a pandemic response, and um, how important is ruthless consistency for leaders during today's crisis? Yeah, and this is very important. Having that ruthless consistency of purpose is even more important now, and you have to be even more painstaking in being consistent. Why? Because people are anxious. Your people are confused. 
right? They're not sure what's going to happen. None of us know what's going to happen. So it's especially important you're consistent in communicating with your people. And the term I like to use, Michael, is to over-communicate during times of change or over-communicate during times of crisis. Because people need to know, you know, not just where are we going, not just how, but why. Why are we changing to this? What does it mean for me? How are we going to support you? We need to be ruthlessly consistent in valuing people and making sure they know we appreciate them. They're playing a valuable role, right? They belong. They're doing something that's meaningful. It's especially important we're consistent in valuing people now. And it's especially important that we're consistent in providing people with the tools and the information to do the job. Because the anxiety is people's roles have had to shift. Maybe they're doing some things, they have to do some different things than before. Maybe some of the things they used to do have gone away. So we've got to make sure we're very consistent in providing people whatever tools and information they need, given the new reality. So in times of change, Michael, ruthless consistency is even more important because if you don't do that, you risk demotivating people who are already anxious, already confused, and then you end up with a very bad situation. Michael, once again, you lay out a concept called ruthless consistency, but you also recognize that there needs to be practical application of of this concept. So, you know, strategy is not an execution plan. So how best can we translate our strategy into an actionable execution plan? Yeah, that's very good. Often I'll ask companies, you know, show me your strategic plan. And they'll show me a plan and say, great, so how do you manage this? How do you manage the execution of it? And they'll point to the plan and they'll say, well, we do this. We talk about this. And my response is, well, talking about it or revisiting it doesn't do anything unless there's an execution plan. And think of it like project management. There needs to be a clear, what are we trying to achieve with this particular strategy? Who's the champion of the strategy? Who's on the team? What are the time-linked milestones we have to hit to make this happen? What are the resource requirements to hit each of those milestones? What's our uh, projected return on strategy that warrants all this effort? So this is project management. There's got to be an ongoing project management process. The execution plan is simply a, it might be a a two-page document that captures those key points. That's what you're managing monthly. You're not looking at that overall strategic plan and say, let's talk about this. You're managing towards those time-linked milestones in your execution plan. So we have to take that so-called strategic plan, translate it into the execution plan. That's what's actionable. To create the right environment, Michael, why must leaders be coaches and not just managers? Well, simply put, coaches take responsibility for the performance of their people. Coaching, a coaching mindset is what do I need to do to help my people perform at their best? What buttons do I need to push? What things do I need to put in place? What levers do I need to pull to help each of my people perform at their best? Coaches take responsibility. And, you know, managers often will just say, well, here's your job, go do it. I'll come back in a year and we'll evaluate your performance in a year. Well, that's not coaching and that's not even managing, frankly, but that's what many managers do. So imagine a, imagine a football game. The beginning of the game, coach runs onto the field with the team. The band is playing. The fans are cheering. The coach runs out onto the field. And then the coach turns around and runs off the field. And he comes back at the end of the game to tell the team how well they did or didn't do. Well, that would be a pretty silly way to engage your team. But that's what we do in business, 
right? We're disengaged from people. Coaches take responsibility. So two people are responsible for the performance of people. It's the people have to perform. The coach needs to create the environment that enables them to perform. And I'll tell you, the other thing is that good coaches realize that not every player, not every team member responds the same way to the same approach. Coaches are very adaptive to the needs of their different team members to help them perform their best. More information on this and other centered resources is available at businessofgovernment.org. There you will find how the business of government is not business as usual. For the IBM Center for the Business of Government, I'm Michael Keegan, and this has been The Center This Week. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors with Glenn Akramov, the author of The Human Centered Team. Uh, so I want to transition, Glenn, from uh, from your book in a little ways to talk a little bit more about the work you've done and, and, and whether putting into practice some of the insights from human-centered teams or what in your, uh, in your work brought you to the insights you uh, wrote, wrote in human-centered teams. And, and where I'm going with this is uh, I was hoping you would tell us more about your work pursuing human-centered local government operations, what you have learned about this uh, kind of work, and maybe share any vignettes you'd like. Yeah, it, it, um, I mean, that's where I started. I, I my, uh, my dad was a uh, New York State trooper, and my mom was a court clerk and a city clerk. So, I'm a second generation. It's in my blood to to serve, be a public servant, as it were. Um, one of the things that I I watched as I started that work is that you know people got in there and then they they when they first started their career it was fresh and they knew they were having impact and they were serving people and they were you know it was very important to them. I, I've identified somewhere between fifteen and eighteen years is usually when that happens is that they start to get a little jaded because the grind of a workplace, the grind of the public never being happy, which is not true, but it's a generalization that government workers um, are very familiar with where people are always calling. We're always dealing with problems and which we like because we're problem solvers, but sometimes that wears you down. And so that's really where this concept was built is me seeing that and when I got a chance to be a leader, and it wasn't always as a le- in a leadership position. It was, you know, having some authority or some leadership um, out in the field or wherever I was. And one of the things that the reason this work became so important to me is I worked alongside a number of people who struggled and didn't make it through that process. And they self-medicated um, in some cases themselves to death. So that, um, I know that's sobering, but I, that's why I take it so serious in, in this case is that, and why I'm always willing to talk about it and help. It's, I think it's part of the reason I wrote the book is that I, I want people to know that they matter and that their work matters. And since we spend so much time working, it is important. And local government is a calling in my mind. It's not just a job. That's terrific. So continuing on 
Glenn, uh, with your experiences, what are some of the key challenges faced by local and municipal governments and how can a focus on pursuing human-centered teams better position governments to tackle some of their most significant challenges? Well, I think they are expected to serve everyone in the way they want to be served. And that puts them at conflict with other people. So I think that's the challenge. That's one of the challenges. The other is for the employee is that they are governed by a governing body of some sort, whether it's a council or a commission or a board. And those folks are elected and they have a tough job. Being elected official is very difficult, um, especially in today's world. But those those pressures, the political pressures, are real for the employees, and that's all of them. You know, that's not just the director, or the manager, or the executive director, or whatever. That is for the janitor feels that the maintenance worker out in the park they feel that political pressure as well, and it's never ending. So I think that's a challenge on how to do that. And when you add social media and the pressures that go with that, the constant lobbying of of negativity towards them, it can wear you. So I think that's why pursuing a human-centered approach is so important to delivering on your promise and your responsibility as a as local government, but also making your people understand how important their work is. Because I tell staffs this, the reality of a local government in particular is that the people that you work for, the community that you're working for, their sense of well-being is directly impacted by your work. And when you put it that way, people can realize, wow, that's, that is a big deal. And there are some people who are going to be happy with it and some not. That's the reality of the work. So that, that can feel heavy, but it also can put, put a pep in your step as far as, hey, when I make this decision and I innovate this and save the city some money and solve this problem, it's a big deal. Glenn, how has your work with municipal and local governments informed the concept of human-centered teams? And I think you kind of alluded to it, but I was wondering if there's anything you wanted to add to that. Um, well, I I think the that was my early career. I, I, I spent 25 years in local government um, from – I started as a seasonal maintenance worker and ended that 25 years as a city manager. So – I saw a lot, I saw it from all different levels. And I just realized every level needs the human centered approach to be able to feel the sense of accomplishment and understand the importance of their work. That's great. Are there any other lessons learned from your work with municipal governments that you'd like to share with us that whether they highlight your, the tenants in your book, the human-centered team, or if there's anything else you want to throw in there for us that we could learn from? Well, for for me, I think the, the biggest learning has been that no matter what you choose to do, um, no matter what your skill set is, that you can have an impact on the world. And I learned that in municipal government because you get, you get to see it. At times you get to see it in someone's face when you arrive or when you're out plowing snow and you, and it's in the morning, early morning. And so, and there's a woman trying to take her kids to daycare and you plow the road and you just see relief in her eyes. Those moments we tend to miss, but 
I learned to see them in it because in local government, I got an opportunity to do that. Everyone can feel that. That's not just government, but um, I, I got that lesson from working. That's wonderful. A couple of last questions here. Um, what is uh, purpose-driven leadership and how does it cultivate trust and inspire creativity? Um, well, we've talked a lot about purpose today and um, and helping everyone understand what their individual, as a leader, what their individual purpose is and and not just not just knowing what it is, but buying into their individual purpose and representing your own and also uh, representing and being able to translate the organization's purpose. I, I think that's as human beings, it is what, what we, we crave. I think when we don't feel like we have a reason to do something or to be here, that's when the problems start. So being purpose-driven is, is a baseline for any human being to succeed in my mind. And so leadership needs to be based on it. So how does that cultivate um, trust? Well, when I, as a leader, ask someone and engage with them about what their individual purpose is, and I know it, and I believe it, and I'm in it with them, I conspire with them to fulfill their purpose. Um, the trust level goes through the roof. And that's something that I, I talk about whenever I enter a workplace is I don't expect you to trust me or to respect me. I'll earn it. And I earn it by being purpose-driven and being committed. And it, it sounds corny sometimes, but I'm going to say it anyway. And that's, you don't always have to like your people, your team, but you do have to love them. And part of that that really shows up and creates trust. And once you unlock someone's purpose and put them on the path and help them go there, the creativity is unending. Um, they will use their their skills, their gifts, their um, their passion for for whatever they're focused on, and and create an incredible incredible solutions and re a really dynamic workplace that everyone wants to be a part of. Mm, that's great. So, hey, Glenn, how can folks get a, a copy of your book? Um, it's on Amazon. Um, you can also find it at humancenteredbook.com. That's terrific. Well, you know, Glenn, I want to thank you for joining me today. It's been great. I appreciate it, Michael. I've enjoyed it. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Glenna Kromoff, author of The Human Centered Team. Be sure to join us next time for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, or listen to the entire interview at iTunes, Spotify, or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more.